this guy on again you heard him in our pre-national title game episode you hear him every week on hold that podcast podcast our lsu podcast with with our beat writer brody miller you also hear him daily on off the bench on 104.5 espn radio in baton rouge t bob a bear what's up t bob andy what is up my friend um it's always a pleasure to be here on ass and uh, i'm very excited uh, to break down. I mean, I'm excited to talk college football. Yeah. But just a little teaser here. We also got some Jedi talk coming your way. And as a man who commits entirely too much time to things that don't really matter, I have a lot of thoughts about your Jedi rankings. Yes, yes. For those who don't know, a couple weeks ago in Dear Andy, I was asked to rank which Jedi from the movie that I would want to be a Padawan learner under. And if you don't know what a Padawan is, congratulations, you're not a nerd. Uh, but you're going to need to know it's, and it's basically apprentice. It's let's say you want to go into plumbing. You have to be an apprentice before you can become a a journeyman plumber. Same thing with a Jedi. You have to be a Padawan before you can be a Jedi. So we're going to talk about who the best Jedi coaches were essentially that, you know, everybody has their, their best coaches list. Ours is just going to involve Jedi, but, but, but we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about football first. Uh, For those who don't know, T-Bob is a former LSU offensive lineman. Uh, his dad played a little ball. You, you probably remember him, Bobby Abair, uh, former quarterback for the Falcons and the Saints. And, you know, I, I think one of the more interesting things, T-Bob, is I'm sure there are people who are hearing your voice and they're going, wait, T-Bob. And so T-Bob is, is kind of a Cajun construction. It means Petit Bob, like Little Bob, right? Yes, yes, yes. It means Petit Bobby. And, and it is because I am... The third, it doesn't necessarily have to be the third. It could be a junior. It's a Cajun culture thing where, like, my dad grew up with guys named, like, T-Doug and T-Mel. It's just like, you know, you you, probably, you may have had – I had a friend where the dad was Big Mitch and the son was Little Mitch. It was just that, just Frenchified. I, I like I like that. I, I think people who haven't heard you before are going, wait, wait, wait. He doesn't sound like he's Cajun. But you grew up in Atlanta, right? Dad was playing for the Falcons when you were younger. Yes. Yeah. I, I was, uh, so I was born in Louisiana, but I moved when I was four over to Atlanta. And even in Louisiana, I lived on like the North shore of New Orleans, which is very suburban. Uh, then I grew up in the Georgia suburbs. Yes. I have a distinct lack of an accent, despite having the name T-Bob a bear, <laughs> which is about like as specifically Cajun as you can get. Now my blood is filled with Cajun. My grandpa is so Cajun that his first language was French. He learned to speak English second. In fact, he used to get punished in school when he was younger. They would make them kneel on rice, which, my God, that sounds terrible. Oh, wow. They make it, they, they, yeah, I know. They would make them kneel on rice if they got caught speaking French in class because they wanted to kind of Americanize the culture. I mean, there's a great irony there that's probably a separate discussion about, like, forcing kids to not be bilingual when now you would desperately want them yes. to be. Please, please yeah. continue speaking French so that you know two languages. <laughs> yeah. But Exactly. But like, but, but that's just a, that's to give you my Cajun heritage that although I did not grow up there, that's what I come from. That's where my dad comes from. And 
That's where LSU's current head coach, who somewhere along the line, him and my dad are cousins. They went to high school one state together back then. They were college roommates. Uh, those two men are as Cajun as they come, and the accents prove it. Well, it, it, it's so interesting. I wrote about Coach O's accent before the national championship game because he and Dabo Sweeney, I think, both got underestimated for years because of their accents. And you know, it's funny because people hear me talk and they're like, oh, where are you from, Ohio or, or somewhere like that? No, I, I'm from South Carolina originally, and I talk just like this when I learned how to talk. And then we moved, <laughs> we moved to Florida and the kids made fun of me, and so I had to change the way I talked. But I can still slip back into it, especially if I get around people from South Carolina. South Carolina. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta get, gotta squeeze it in there. South Carolina. Uh, but, but if I, if I get around that accent, it will come back. But it, it's so strange because I, I think you probably understand this really well because you have a lot of relatives that people who don't talk like that don't understand. And yeah. I have a lot of now. A lot of my relatives are not from South Carolina. Most of all my mom's family is from Alabama. She's from Selma, Alabama, and it is a very distinct, thick accent there. Uh, you, you don't say mom and dad; you say mama and Didi. And uh, you know, when when people start, to, I have a, I have relatives. One who kind of talks as fast as Boomhauer from King of the Hill, except in the Alabama yep. accent. And it's so funny because you, I, I'm curious. Growing up, did you even notice it? The accent when you talk to your dad. Or was it just your dad talking? I mean, no. It, 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 I mean, it was my dad talking, but the older you get, you definitely realize, right? Because, like, my friends would come over, and they would have, like, no idea what he's saying. And then also when I grew up, the water boy was obviously huge. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, like, a lot of assumptions were made uh, through that movie. And, and, and it becomes a thing where – and I think if you're the person making these judgments, it's to your own detriment. But you're right. Like, people will judge you based on your accent and how you sound. Like my grandpa, like I said, second language English, incredibly thick accent. Even I, as a child one time, he told me, go grab a bat. And I was like, what? And he's told me, go grab a bat. And so I went to the garage and I grabbed a baseball bat, only then to realize, no, he was telling me to grab a bat, that it was time yeah, go, to go clean. Like, go get clean. I kind of showed back up in the living room with a bat. I'm like, okay, Papa, like, what, what now? <laughs> well, that's why I, I, I was in, I was in college. I was working for the college newspaper, and this is back before we all had cell phones. And so, you know, if somebody needed me and they knew I was in the office, they they call the main number and then ask to be, you know, switched to sports so they could talk to me. And one of our news side writers answers the phone one night, and he goes, "Hey, Andy, there's some hick lady on the phone on line two for you." And I'm I'm like, I don't know who this is. I mean, who would be calling me? So I pick up the phone, and it's my mom. <laughs> and it, it was no. the first time it had occurred to me that she had an accent at all. Wow. And I, wow. And, See, no, go on. I didn't mean to cut no, you No, no, no. But it, it, it was amazing. And, and I told that guy, I was like, you realize that hick lady has two more college degrees than you do. Okay, so that, that, that's exactly where I was going, right? Because especially post-Waterboy, and it wasn't like I took offense to these things. It was all made in good fun. But like – you know, a lot of people, like when my grandpa would talk, that's the first people that people's brain went. Uh, the character tweaking his pierced nipples in The Water Boy is not necessarily a shining beacon of intelligence. No. Uh, my grandpa, on the other hand, is a civil engineer who built multiple bridges in New Orleans, 
He was one of the most tactful and emotionally intelligent people I have ever known in my entire life. I've never seen anybody ingratiate themselves with people as quickly as he could. Like he was incredibly smart, incredibly sociable. And yet a lot of prejudgments were always made because of how he sounded. Well, and that brings me to Coach O because I, I feel like he's a guy who got continually underestimated because of the way he sounds, because of the way he talks. I think you go back to the USC thing, because I, I did a story for Sports Illustrated on him when he was the interim at USC, and I didn't know him that well. I'd met him a couple times. I'd heard horror stories about the the time when he was at Ole Miss, yeah. and I was very surprised when I got out there to talk to him about that stuff, how quickly he said, I messed up a lot of things at Ole Miss, and I'm making sure I don't do that now, and I'm, show, I'm trying to show everybody what how I've learned from this, and to a man, you talk to the players, and they were just enthralled. They were like, this guy is awesome. This is amazing. I can't believe it can be like this. And, it, you know, you look back in hindsight, USC should have given him the job. Yeah. But he wasn't even really considered for it, which is nope. crazy now. And it was, I mean, look, they'll never come out and say this, but, like, there is no doubt that elitism played a huge role in that. When you think about the SC brand and you think about the the prestige in the West Coast, the bottom line is that they didn't want a man who sounded like that being the face of the program. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and yes, the 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 Ole Miss resume can't be ignored either, right? Because that it's so rare to see a coach overcome that sort of failure and to work their way into that second chance. But to give you an idea, and maybe it's not even as much a commentary on USC because Andy. Nobody should have been more accepting of Ed Ogeron than LSU. Correct. And yet there was probably about 50% of the fan base that felt the exact same way. That this is LSU. Like this is, you know, this is one of the premier college football institutions. You can't have this this kind of gravelly Cajun man running it. Do you remember how it was at Ole Miss? And, and so, yeah, all these kind of preconceived notions I think were already built in surrounding Coach O, and thankfully, by a mixture of uh, luck, some good decisions, happenstance, like however it is, he ended up getting that opportunity, and now uh, the results speak for themselves. And for anybody else out there, I mean, the Coach O story, in terms of being an inspiration for overcoming adversity, recognizing that failure can be a launch pad if you are willing to learn from those failures. I mean, it's something that we can all draw from. And, and you know what's funny? He kind of was that guy that you're stereotyping him to be. He was that at Ole Miss. Absolutely. And he'll tell you that. He'll be the first person yes. to tell you that. And that, that I think is more amazing than anything else is because a lot of these guys have such big egos. And if you get to the point where you're an SEC head coach, like he was at Ole Miss, it is human nature for your ego to say, no, I'm right because this got me here. Yep. But yeah, he didn't straight up. <laughs> and and so when he didn't get that USC job, or really actually after the old miss job, as he's talked about, you know, he had to, I think he took a year off. He got real introspective. Where did it go wrong? And and he learned and and he put real work into fixing the problems. And and, and as you said, now you're talking about a guy who, even though you, you can think he sounds whoever he sounds, he's actually incredibly forward thinking. And he's incredibly smart when it comes to delegation and recognizing, okay, these are my areas of expertise, and then I can take input in these areas from others. Like, he uses 
analytics in every facet of the program, um, not just on the field decision-making, which absolutely they have a guy who on the field, his sole job is to know analytics as they relate to clock management and say, okay, calling the timeout here gives you your best percentage which, chance. Which at LSU blah, blah, blah. is a very interesting thing to have <laughs> given what was going on the prior, the prior you know, 15 years. It's one of the most stark dividing lines that you can draw between the Miles era and the Ogeron era, and, and it is, again, a, a that is a masterclass in stubbornness and how it can get you into trouble, is everybody begged Miles for years to have that guy. Just have that guy. And then you don't have to worry about it. You don't need to make those decisions. And, and you know what? I'm not saying that Ogeron doesn't make unilateral decisions because sometimes he does. Like, there were a couple times this year where he basically called timeout just because the defense was kind of on its heels. And he thought they needed a break or they needed to kind of get their head. And like, you can still make those impulsive calls as a coach, but you got so much to worry about. Why not compartmentalize? And so let a guy whose sole job is to manage a clock. They have that. They have a guy whose sole job is to know fourth down, down and distance, what point in the field, how much time on the clock, analytically, what are the chances and when does it reach that tipping point into, oh, we should go for this on fourth down. And so they do that on the field, but even off the field, recruiting-wise, right? Jack Marucci, the head of LSU athletic trainer, he's worked for years on what he calls a character metric. And he has figured out uh, that the highest character teams at LSU also directly correlate with the most successful teams. And so they've used that data to influence who they're going after in recruiting and some of the things that they value and how they weight certain aspects of a recruiting profile. Um, another thing that Marucci's been working on, but by the way, studies. this is this is a guy who does not need to be working at LSU because he's made a bazillion dollars <laughs> making baseball bats. Yeah, he made. Uh, yeah, hey, for you baseball fans out there, this is the same guy that uh, Marucci bats have now taken over the MLB for years now, and he originally made the first Marucci bat in his backyard for his kid because his kid wanted a bat. And, uh, and so, yes, Jack Marucci is his own fascinating character. But he's doing another analytical study where they're looking at, okay, which regions of the country produce by position the most successful NFL players? And it came back, and it said, no surprise, right, the Midwest makes the best alignment. And so that's why now they're making a more concerted effort. They just got Garrett Dellinger out of Michigan. They got Anthony Bradford out of Michigan last year. They got – or two years ago, they got Charles Turner. Like – they are using data, analytics, and all these cutting-edge technologies to inform every single aspect of decision-making at LSU. And that's with Ed Ogeron, the bumbling Cajun, at, you know, as, as, at the fore, the, the guy that, that's giving those directions. Yeah, it, it, is, it is amazing how advanced that operation is. And you, know, you, you look at what Ed Ogeron did when he got the job. He was immediately going to change the offense. Now, it took – a couple tries to get it the way he wanted it. The, the Matt Canada experiment didn't work out, but he was trying the whole time. And I think for LSU yeah. fans, that was the most encouraging thing is he was trying something because they were, they were so frustrated and you would understand <laughs> this better because you played in this <laughs> offense. But Dude, you just, you just hit me, I don't mean to interrupt. You just hit me with some like, you, when you say try something, you just hit me with some great parallels. So I read, uh, an excellent FDR bi- biography recently, just called FDR, right? And during the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover was president, and they were very much like kind of taking a market will 
fix itself type of attitude, right? And like one of the famous FDR speeches is he's like, you know, we'll we'll try, and 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 if it fails, okay, good. Admit why it fails, and admit that it fails, and then move on and try something new. But for God's sake, try something. And like that was one of the taglines that he's employed, like try something, and that is exactly how LSU fans felt offensively. And Coach Miles was not trying. He was not making those adjustments, trying to evolve. Oh, was. It was a journey, as you said. But eventually he got there. And look at the benefits that were reaped. Yeah. And what is it like, you know, you live in Baton Rouge, you're a former player. Among the folks that love LSU, what was that like watching – a dynamic LSU offense. What does that do to your brain after years and years of wanting to see something like that? I mean, it's just, it still just feels like a fever dream. I mean, it's just a super kind of pinch yourself type of moment. And I'm laughing because I was laughing. because I was thinking back to like last SEC media days, really last summer where I kept making the joke. I said, I feel a bit like John the Baptist here because, but you still uh, have your head. So that's good. Yes, yes. But, you know, like kind of lay in the groundwork, right? Because we were talking about I, – I had seen a spring's close scrimmage in which I saw the offense dominate the defense. Uh, I had heard so much good anecdotal evidence that the offense was actually going to be good. And so I was – you know, I, I had a level of expectation. And I was sitting there telling anybody who would listen, like, no, trust me, they're actually going to be good this year. And I was constantly getting laughed at. But all that is to say – even though I was sitting there being positive, even in my most gluttonous, greediest, wildest of dreams, I would have never guessed that the LSU offense would have been as amazing as it was. I mean, it just, it's still, like I said, it just doesn't feel real. 60 touchdowns, the most successful offense in SEC history, a Heisman winner by the largest margin. Like, these are things you got to understand. LSU fans are coming from like, Brandon Harris and Anthony Jennings and even Danny Etling, who was like, all right, but not that good. And then to get what you got out of Burrow, it just, it was unreal. And and now it's honestly, it's kind of interesting because it's going to be more of the expectation at LSU. Like they think that that offense should, you know, it's not going to reach those heights, but they expect and should LSU's offense to be dominant once again. Yeah. That's, that's the most amazing thing is how, quickly it flipped even though remember the the guy who kind of injected well two guys the two guys who injected this in the offense are gone the Joe Burrow is in the NFL and, and Joe Brady is also in the NFL but the Insminger the Steve Insminger factor to me is interesting because he was the one calling the plays he is the one who's still there and is kind of now tra- he he was getting trained in all these different facets by Joe Brady and the fact that Steve Insminger who's been you know, been doing this for a long time is humble enough to say, okay, I'll let this 30 year old teach me this stuff because I need to know it. It'll make me better at my job. So he's going to take that now and, and teach that to Scott Linehan, who is a very veteran coach, worked in the NFL for a long time. But the Insminger factor, I think, is, is critical to LSU. And I'm still not sure he's gotten enough credit. Yeah. And you know what? And I think that's probably just going to, I mean, maybe this year we'll change it, but then will it just be, oh, well, this is mainly Linehan, right? Like, I don't know if Steve Ensminger is ever going to get the credit that he deserves. Um, 
I've always kind of called him the LSU Moses, right? He's, he's had to pave the way, but he doesn't necessarily get to get to the promised land himself. Now, he did end up there. Uh, but, we'll, but, 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 but that is the great part about it. You mentioned the lack of ego. That's okay with Steven Smear. He just wants to win, right? Yeah. And they're doing that, and he's making like double what he was. So, like, I don't think that Steven Smear really gives a damn about public opinion. He never has as long as I've known him. I, I, I just he, you made a good point there, and and it's the older I get, the because I when I was young, I would say I don't want to be rich. I just want to be famous. <laughs> Every, the older I get, the more I go. I don't want to be famous at all. I just want to be rich. I want to be like the, yeah, exactly. the anonymous rich guy. So yeah, and so he's got that going on right now. He's making like eight hundred k or a million or whatever it is now. Coach, coach, he ain't tripping. But, 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 but you do you do hit on something last year that you got to see if Linehan can carry over, which is last year LSU had a perfect storm where you had a coach in Joe Brady who understood to the nth degree, the modern concepts of offensive football, what he lacked was experience. Well, then you have a coach in Steve Insminger who has literal decades worth of not just coaching experience, but play calling experience, being an OC, multiple different schools, multiple different levels. What he didn't have was the full modern understanding. And then the third piece of the Triforce there is simply Joe Burrow, right? A grad transfer quarterback, who randomly, because he got put in a room that once featured four guys who would go on to make Sports Illustrated covers, didn't get to play, had to transfer. He's a grad transfer. He had no school, so he could basically treat it like a pro, be fully committed. And it was just this perfect marriage of everybody being strong, whereas the other was weak, and, and being willing to work together. And, and Ensminger's lack of ego is key in that. Because a lot of guys with all that experience, as you alluded to, would not have wanted to learn or been open to learn from a Joe Brady, and he didn't care. He just wanted to win. And he wants to do the same thing with Linehan. And although, look, they're always going to be really positive at this time of year, the anecdotal evidence on Linehan is very nice. They, they, they think that he's fitting in great. And it's kind of uh, – Brody Miller pointed this out, right? What a jump. Uh, what an impact LSU's offensive success has had where one year – the passing game coordinator is a no-name NFL GA, essentially, in uh, Joe Brady. And the next year, you get a guy who's been a former NFL head coach for that position. It's, it's crazy. Gather around, kiddies. It is story time with Uncle Andy. And today, I'm going to tell you about the morning of my senior prom. I wanted to make sure I smelled great for the blessed event. And so I went to Flea World. For those of you who know Central Florida well, Flea World was and possibly still is the world's largest outdoor flea market. And the things that they sold at Flea World, some were knockoffs. Some might have fallen off the back of a truck. I, I don't know. I, I don't judge here. All I know is that I wanted to smell great for my prom. And I wanted that popular cologne that was you know, slightly lower temperature H2O. That was the... The new jam in 1996. That was the hotness. So I needed to get as much of that as possible for as little money as possible. And I bought an industrial sized jug of it at the flea market. I think it was like 25 bucks. I know that I used that bottle of cologne until I was 35 years old. Do not follow my example when it comes to cologne. 
You can do so much better. You have many more options. You do not need to hit the dirt mall to buy your cologne. In fact, you need to hit Hawthorne.co. Take their quiz. Easy questions. They ask you what kind of smells you like, how often you shower, and I hope it's at least daily, please. They ask you what a, a night out is for you. They ask you what your drink of choice is. And they provide the perfect cologne for you. In fact, the perfect entire bathroom setup for you. You can get your lotions, your soaps. But for cologne for me, they want me to get the work and the play. The work is your fresh and aquatic. The play is your warm and aromatic in case your significant other wants to nuzzle in the neck. And that's, it feels like, you know, you're by the fire. So that's the stuff you need, not the stuff from the flea market. Hawthorne.co. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Use my promo code STAPLES and get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use my promo code STAPLES to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Now, you dropped a Legend of Zelda reference there, so I feel like this is a good time to... uh, to pivot a little bit. Now, I wanted to ask you because you've got a newborn, you've got a, a two-month-old, and you've also got a two-and-a-half-year-old. So I, I've lived where you're living right now. My kids are 20 months apart. They are now 10 and 9 years old. How excited are you to get your girls into all the nerdy stuff you love? And, oh, and do dude. you expect them to like it? Oh, my God. Um, I hope so. I'm, I'm, I would be far more disappointed if my kids were like not into the nerdy stuff and were into sports than vice versa. Like if I could choose, I would have them be into the nerdy stuff and not care about sports. Like that would actually make me happier. So I, I, I'm just so worried because I know anytime that you try to push something on your kids too hard, you run the risk of it completely backfiring. Yes. And so I'm trying to kind of let them naturally find their way there. But I got to say, my little two-year-old daughter, dude, she has so many little quirks like me. She loves miniatures just naturally. She seems to be into like magic sort of stuff. Um, We watched Star Wars together the other day and she was reacting at all the right times. Like she loves playing like lightsabers with me or waving around wands for Harry Potter. So like fingers crossed she likes it because one of my dreams, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's like the most fun thing you can do. And one of my dreams is being the DM for like her and her friends when they get older. And and if they don't want to do that, I'm going to be really hurt. That, that is like that is the so much fun. single dorkiest dad dream I've ever heard. It's amazing. <laughs> That is amazing. I mean, it's just a great it's just a great excuse for me to get the DM and be a good father at the same time. Absolutely. So much fun. Well, it, it, it's interesting because so you you are not I, you and I are similar in our nerdiness where we don't have one thing we sort of pivot to. Like my brother in law is a massive Star Wars guy. Yeah, doesn't really care as much about Harry Potter. Doesn't care about Tolkien. Doesn't care about any of that stuff. You like it all. Uh, you yes, you actually had a so. uh, on your radio show basically a, a radio opera yeah. where you you <laughs> yeah. described LSU season and, as if you were Tolkien writing a Lord of the Rings well, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we so so how I approached that song of purple and gold was uh, that's what we called it. Um, 
I it was like a radio play. I called it my fantasy football segment. Only the fantasy was swords and shields. And so yes, we followed the adventures of the Swamp King for uh, you know about ten minute episodes, ten to fifteen minute episodes each Friday. Fully sound effect, voice acting, music, all that. And uh, we followed the adventures of the Swamp King as he tried to unseat the Crimson Emperor and uh, take over Southeast Europe. So, so let's let's. You know where where are we on our like? Did you did you ever wait in line for a Harry Potter book? Um, absolutely. Actually, I have a great story there. I wait in line for multiple Harry Potter books, multiple midnight releases, probably Goblet of Fire on as soon as they would come out. I would not leave my room until I finished. I, them. I did the same but thing. My favorite. Yeah, I know, dude. It's the best. My favorite was in 07 when Deathly Hallows came out. Like an idiot, I didn't pre-order it. I'm a freshman in college. We had just shown up on campus at LSU. And one of my fellow recruits, Joe Barksdale, big, massive D-tackle. Great musician, Michigan. right? Uh, incredible musician nowadays. He's a renaissance man. He also ended up playing eight years O-line in the NFL. Great guy. But I didn't reserve my copy. And, and, and he did. And I just thought, I'll just go at midnight. I'm going to be able to get it. Wrong. All these books were reserved. I wasn't getting it. So Joe shows up at the Barnes & Noble on campus, and he gets his. And he's like a six seven dude. He's a big guy. And he basically just kind of strong-armed the person. He was like, hey, I'm going to need another one. And they're like, huh? <laughs> he's amazing. like, yeah, I'm going to need another one of those. And then so Joe saved me and got me my copy of Deathly Hallows at Midnight. I mean, no exaggeration. I was like on the verge of tears thinking I wasn't going to be able to <laughs> see, dive into it immediately. See, while this was going on, because you were on Central Time an hour behind me, I was uh, – so that was the night – I was the Florida beat writer for the Tampa Tribune, and that was the night that Florida had their Friday Night Lights camp, which you know Urban Meyer kind of pioneered those one-day camps where they'd bring in all the best recruits in the whole country, and they'd duke it out on the field for a night. So I had covered that, I, you know, the most macho, testosterone football thing you can do, and then I d- immediately drove to Walmart and stood in line for my copy of yes, Deathly Hallows. I mean, that's it, though. Shout out to, shout out to J.K. And, uh, well, I guess that's a more controversial opinion now. But that's fine. Whatever. Shout out to Harry Potter. Those books were incredible. Some of the most positive memories of my life are, are is just that feeling like your hair is on fire. Like you cannot put the book down. Oh, yeah. You have to know what happens I, next. I, I, from, and I think it's sort of like, because I came into it late. I think Prisoner of Azkaban was the was out had just come out when i started reading them dude and, me too this yeah. is so weird timing wise that's exactly when i got in. my, my sister-in-law got me into. she's like you got to read these you 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 love all this stuff just hear the first two books the third one just came out read these two and i bet you'll get the third and that's exactly right and then from that on like gobble to fire which is a very long book i yeah. just plowed through in a day and 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 it's like 750 pages basically and I don't know about you, but that is where, to me, the books took the next step. Absolutely. Like, like the first three are very good, but Goblet of Fire is just, I mean, that well, thing is embedded into my heart from, like, the, the Quidditch World Cup Open, right. they're the great, Triwizard Tournament. They're great world builders. Or JK is a great world builder, and you learned a lot about that world in the first three books. But you, you only really learned about Harry with the Dursleys, Diagon Alley, Hogwarts and Hogsmeade. That's all you really learned yes. about in those first three books. The fourth one 
brought you this wider world. It brought you Durmstrang. It brought you uh, where, where what's the school where Fleur Delacour goes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that part really introduced the the actual Wizarding world. And if we haven't, chased I mean, bro, off I'll never forget the Quidditch yet. World Cup as yes. like a sports fan. The Quidditch Victor Crum. Yes, and then they have like I don't know why it's always stood out to me, but they describe the little action figures that basically move and fly around on their own. You know how I would have killed for my starting my starting lineup football players. Oh my god! To play football on their own, like it would have been unbelievable. I, I constantly had that fantasy after reading. I used to have WWE, well WWF at the time, matches with my GI Joe figures because they yeah. were fully poseable. But yeah, no, I mean, so th- this is this is the sort of stuff that we're into, and this is why I sent T Bob my. Uh, my Jedi coach rankings because I knew he'd have thoughts on this and, and I'll, I'll set you guys up. So this is a question from, from a reader named Mike in North Canton, Ohio. And he said, rank the Jedi's movies only, by the way, who I personally would want to be the Padawan under. So who, what, what Jedi coach would I want to play for? Who's, who's Jedi Nick Saban? Who's Jedi Dabo Sweeney? Who's Jedi Ed Orgeron? And so basically the way I, I looked at it, there's six Jedi in the in the nine movies that you get a sense of how they'd be as a teacher. There, there are other Jedi that you meet in the first three, but you don't really get to know them well enough to, to make any any sort of decisions. Yeah, no, so, no, no one, no one knows Kit, if Kit Fisto is going to be a good coach or not. Exactly. So I'll I'll go from the bottom because that's that's how we want to do rankings and and. T Bob, you just jump in and tell me where I'm wrong or or where, where I'm on the right track here. So well, here, why, why don't you why don't you go go through the bottom to the top, okay. and then I'll give some notes afterwards. Okay. So number six is Anakin Skywalker, whiniest mm-hmm. Jedi of all time. Turns into Darth <laughs> Vader. <laughs> Clearly was not listening to Obi Wan ever. So Obi Wan was his his master. So I just don't you know get, ends up getting in a fight with Obi Wan. Obi Wan winds up, you know, basically decimating Anakin Skywalker he has to be brought back as a robot. But here's the thing. And and this is the part where I I diverted from the movies only edicts because there is a pretty big body of work that gives us a little bit of of evidence of what Anakin was like as a teacher to a Jedi because if you watch if you watch the Clone Wars series which it's all, it's all on Disney Plus and if you if you like Star Wars at all and you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. But it's spectacular. But his Padawan Ahsoka is awesome, and I think we're going to get to yep. see her in the Mandalorian next year. I think it's Ro- I think Rosario yep. Dawson is playing her in the Mandalorian. So, but she actually turns out to be awesome. Now things don't necessarily end well for her either. But maybe Anakin was a decent teacher. Still, I, I he's such a whiner. I can't I can't go with that. Um, okay, sure. Number five, Luke Skywalker. Uh, we know where Luke gets his whininess from. He gets it honestly uh, from his daddy. But one of his Padawans killed a bunch of Jedi in training. That would be Kylo Ren uh, because Luke was about to murder him with a lightsaber and Kylo woke up uh, or ben, ben Solo woke up. Uh, but finally, Luke does get talked into teaching Ray some stuff, which is the only reason why he's above Anakin on this list. Uh, oh, okay, okay, all right. okay. Well, we'll get to Luke. We'll get to Luke. Okay, we'll get to Luke. number four, Mace Windu, which this is your old school. This is your old Miss at Orgeron Jedi Master here. He's going to cuss you out. You're yeah. going to hear. You're going to hear the f word a lot. 
from Mace Windu. Yeah. So that that's good. Number three, Qui Gon Jinn trained Obi Wan Kenobi, which that that speaks very well of him. Also, he yep. will teach you a very particular set of skills. Yeah, Liam Neeson. I mean, he's the man. I'm not entirely sure which Liam Neeson character I'd rather have training me. I think the Taken guy, then Qui Gon, and then Rob Roy. I think those three. <laughs> I think. I think. Well. I think I would go with Qui-Gon, but I'll explain why later. Okay. Qui-Gon may be number one on my list. All right. Number two, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And like Luke Skywalker, one of his Padawans killed most of a, a bunch of Jedi in training and actually killed most of the existing Jedi. Uh, so <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi's Padawan was, of course, Anakin Skywalker. Uh, but but Obi-Wan did begin the training of Luke Skywalker kept Luke safe all those years, so I, I gotta give him credit, when he was the galaxy's only hope, he did come through. Number one, Yoda. Train the guy who took down the Empire, convinces that guy to then train the young lady who takes down the First Order. Yeah. I think Yoda Yoda did a... He's not perfect. Okay. Obviously, he trained Count Dooku, who went to the dark side. That's bad. But he is... As important a teacher, yeah. It's one of those like you may not like Nick Saban's methods, but he gets it done. So that's yeah. that's Yoda, right? Okay, there. okay, okay. But this is where I'm going to jump in. Okay, and this is this is tough to come to grips with when it comes to Yoda because I love him and I love. I think his scenes in Empire are unbelievable. I think his scenes, uh, even in the Last Jedi. Are, are just spectacular. But here is the harsh truth about Yoda and what's going to hold him off from being number one on my list and that this would never happen to Nick Saban. Yoda helped to engineer a galactic war that cost the lives of billions while taking orders from the very man that he was supposed to hunt down. I talked about this. I talked about this on my morning show today, actually, randomly. We're talking about movie villains. And Emperor Palpatine, while not always executed well on screen or at least the movies as a whole, just in terms of efficacy, Emperor Palpatine has to be one of the most successful villains of all time. Think about that. He made everybody think that the thing he was trying to do was their idea. Yes. Who is the one person? that Yoda and the Jedi Council are trying to find. They're trying to find who's the Sith Lord. Where's he at? And who are He's they in taking the orders chamber. from? Yes, like, it, it's the guy who just told you to go attack X planet. And the guy who just told you and, and got you to bring troops to this planet. And although Yoda definitely started to catch on at the end, it, the cat was already out of the bag. It was way too late. So, and, and, and look, I love Yoda as an Ed Ogeron-like redemption story. And you see that redemption then come into play in The Last Jedi, where he basically has to wake up Luke and get Luke to find his own redemption. Like, Luke, you're thinking such big picture. You got you to look closer. You got to look at what's right in front of you. Well, old, old Yoda could have told that to young Yoda as well. So I can't have Yoda number one on my list for that reason. Maybe the most powerful. But my number one guy, and so much of this is going to go back to – uh, have you watched the gallery show on Disney Plus, which is essentially like a making of The Mandalorian? No, I need to watch that. I, I've not got it. Okay, so it's very good. But in the first episode, they're going through all the directors because The Mandalorian had this incredible group of directors, right? It's like Rick Fumiyama, Deborah Chow, and 
and uh, and John Favreau was the mastermind behind all of it. And Bryce Dallas Howard did episodes, and uh, Taika Waititi, like, and then Dave Filoni. And if you're out there, you don't know who Dave Filoni is. He is the guy that made the Clone Wars cartoon. He is the guy that made the Star Wars Rebel cartoon, and he is the guy that, along with John Favreau, made uh, Mandalorian. So, like, he is the man right now. He is, in my opinion, the best Star Wars creator out there right now. And he, in that first episode of Gallery, has a four-minute clip where he's talking about Duel of the Fates, the, the, the battle, Duel of the Fates, where Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi are fighting Darth Maul. And what he points out is it's called Duel of the Fates because literally Anakin's fate is on the line at that point. If you think back to Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon was the father that Anakin never had. Obi-Wan was not. Obi-Wan was, Obi-Wan was a young a guy. He's still trying to learn. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And he was like, why are we bringing this guy along? He literally had a line about like, who's this useless life? Like another useless life form? We already got Jar Jar. Qui-Gon didn't think that way. Qui-Gon was going to be that father figure. And you know what? You see the repercussions of Anakin not having that. That's why he's so temperamental. It's one of the reasons why uh, he, he is so whiny and all of these things. Like he never was given so, that instead. There, there's a, so there's a, there's gone a, gone all of a sudden. There's a nerdy cartoon thing no, here. That there's a parallel. I don't, you probably are too young for this. I'll be impressed if you remember this. Did you, did you watch the GI Joe cartoon as a kid? No, dude, it's right. It's just right before so my time. They, I they never create, did. they decide, Dr. Ben, Mindbender decides that they want to create a new, a, a better version of Cobra Commander because Cobra Commander is incompetent. And so they create this guy called Serpentor, mostly because Hasbro wanted to sell more toys. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the, the creation of Serpentor is in this five-part series where they're going and stealing the DNA. This is actually where I first learned about the concept of deoxyribonucleic acid, by the way, on G.I. <laughs> Joe when I was in second grade. So they, they steal all these different leader, military leaders' DNA to create the perfect military leader, but they can never get Sun Tzu's DNA because the G.I. Joe forces stop them. They figure out what's going on and they guard, start guarding the tombs, and so they Dude, stop them from getting Sun Tzu. big storyline. Yeah, so they stop them from getting Sun Tzu. Well, Sun Tzu was the rational, calm piece that they needed. And ah. so Serpentor was actually just as impulsive as Cobra Commander because he didn't have that Sun Tzu DNA. That's kind of the same thing is Qui-Gon Jinn was older, more mature, had more of a fatherly aspect to him, would have imparted that to Anakin, whereas Obi-Wan Kenobi was a, a, a kind of guy in his 20s, finding his way, sowing his oats, and, and, and something, he, something he else, a, had something, a little harder edge. And something else that Filoni points out that is very accurate in my opinion is that at that time, the Jedi Council had kind, of, had kind of lost its way a little bit. It had become highly politicized, right? They had maybe misconstrued some of those original Jedi teachings to where they were devoid of emotion. Things like love and relationships, these were all things that were discouraged. Qui-Gon didn't necessarily see eye to eye with the Council on that. It's one of the reasons why he wanted to train Anakin. It's why he didn't agree with the kind of overall direction that it was going, whereas Obi-Wan did. Obi-Wan is the like the paragon of what 
the council wanted a Jedi to be at that time. And, and so, again, you're getting a more – I mean, think about Obi-Wan. If you watch the Clone Wars cartoon, he had potential love of his life that he turned down in the name of service and because Jedis aren't supposed – so, yeah, you end up with a colder, more brother, more friend-like mentor, and, and, and that absence of the father – uh, it, 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 it stays there and it ends up warping Anakin in some ways that end up coming to fruition down the line. So first off, that makes the duel of the fate scene incredible because like, first off, it literally is a duel of the fates, the two fates of Anakin, but then also it really speaks to what a Jedi Qui-Gon Jinn was. And then if we just want to get into like power levels, the fact that Qui-Gon was the one that finally cracked the code on becoming a force ghost. And the impact that that would later have, whether it was Obi-Wan talking to Luke or Yoda talking to Luke, like that obviously had major ramifications. So, yes, I, I, I have no problem putting Qui-Gon Jinn as my number one Jedi of all time, I, even though he's only in one movie. He died. And, and like I said, I cannot recommend enough. These are all me paraphrasing Dave Filoni's thoughts on Qui-Gon. And it is fantastic. Well, and, and they could not have cast that role anymore perfectly Leon, Liam Neeson is the perfect person for that because he he just exudes that on screen and again you're watching that in in I, I believe Phantom Menace is out before Taken so you haven't seen that but you've seen Liam Neeson in, in a lot of you know Rob Roy type movies in a lot of roles where he is a physically dominant person but then once you see him in Taken and then you put that that because you have to put that guy's mind in Qui-Gon Jinn's head at that point because you can't unsee that. You know that Qui-Gon well, Jinn a, had a, a very master. particular set of skills. Yeah, he's a master of his craft, for sure. I mean, like, when they go to when they go to do the negotiations at the very beginning of the movie and, like, you know, they start pumping in poison into a locked room and there was, like, no panic on Qui-Gon. It was just kind of like, oh, shit, here it goes again. All I, right. I, uh, <laughs> you, you, might, you might have me. I don't know. I, I still I still think Yoda is uh, is Jedi Nick Saban. But... I would go... So, so okay, if I'm putting Qui-Gon 1, it's tough for me to know where to rank Luke because, personally, I love Luke. And, actually, personally, I think Luke's story in The Last Jedi is absolutely fantastic although that's an argument for another time i was gonna say we can we can have a six hour podcast on that but but the difference is i'm with you on that one i i don't get all the hatred for last jedi so oh okay yes yeah so i'm a big last jedi fan but luke is tough to rank because he's not as like traditional of a jedi as these other jedis who were around when well, the, you know, stru- the structure was gone, right? There was no Jedi Council. Yeah. There was no – Luke is just sort of, well, the last Jedi, for, basically. For all you, you, for all you canon fans, he's kind of like a Kyle Rayner when the GL Corpse is gone. But I digress. So I don't know where to put Luke right now. Um, I would go Yoda 1. In terms of 2, I, I, I know I like Obi-Wan the most. Um, he's also got an incredible dueling record to his name. Yes, he lost to Dooku, but he does. Uh, he has some incredible fights against Maul. I would recommend checking out Rebels and see the culmination of the Maul Obi Wan storyline. Um, but in Clone Wars, even he beats Maul and his brother multiple times. Uh, he obviously beats Anakin one on one on Mustafar. So like, and 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 Obi Wan. Look, nothing he did was out of malice. He just like in terms of how he raised Anakin and him believing in the more 
politicized and less emotional Jedi code. He just is man of principle, well, and that's what and, he committed and his life to, and he did it to the highest degree. Remember, Obi-Wan's training wasn't necessarily complete either because Qui-Gon died yeah. early. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I let, let, let me look. I, I think I would go Obi-Wan 2, and then... Now this is this is as coaches, though. This is not as players. This is this is as coaches, so it's it's just strictly... Okay, then as coaches. Teaching. Okay, okay, no, no, then, I, then you're right. Then you're right. Then I would go Qui-Gon, then Yoda. Yeah. And then I would go Obi-Wan. Yeah, yeah, it's and then Mace and then I don't even know if I'm sticking Luke in as a coach, because as you kind of alluded to, we don't always get the best coaching. Like I would actually probably even put Anakin ahead of Luke because of the Ahsoka Tano effect. Luke, Luke is kind of the the great player who doesn't really make a great coach. It's like, the you know, <laughs> he did, he did Ma- trans- Magic Johnson as a, as a coach. <laughs> yeah. He did not. He did not. Trans- like, like, hey, just go out there and do all. what I did. It was easy. And that, that's actually, like, honestly, that is my one issue with uh, last year's opinion is if they would have had that more, uh, you know, like Yoda riding on Luke's back and, like, doing the push-ups and then, like, there is no try, you know, there's do or do not and raising the X-Wing. Like, you definitely missed that in, in Last Jedi. Yeah, because he didn't want to do it. So. Well, and you know what? And honestly, and this is okay. Now I'm just going full Star Wars nerd. This is also just where the unfortunate um, death of Carrie Fisher comes into play. Yes, it does feel like obviously their plan the whole time was for Luke to save the day in Last Jedi, but then for Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia to actually be the person that trains Ray. Right. Because as we learn, Luke actually trained Leia before Leia decided that, no, she needed to go be a general and, and lead people. And, and, and so, yeah, if, if Carrie had not passed, I think you had a ton of potential, and they even did some of it, but to show Princess Leia as the person who really brings Rey to that next level. And then we would have had her in our coach rankings, and she probably would have ranked higher than Luke still. So, <laughs> no, no, without a doubt. E- even with a lot of the poorly executed aspects, in my opinion, of Rise of Skywalker, uh, Princess Leia is a definite better coach. Actually, because of her generalship, she could move up those rankings quite high if you threw her on the list. Oh, she'd be right up, th- right up there with Qui Gon. So, yeah. T Bob, I think we have probably chased 97% of the listeners away. I know, dude. I was worried about that, man. I feel bad. I haven't. But, but you know yeah, what? It's just, I can't help it. I can't help that it. That 3%, I love you. <laughs> You, you have my heart. <laughs> I love you so much. Thank you, T-Buff. Uh, thank you, Eddie. Thank you very much. And uh, have a great day, bro. It's always fun.